0: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Christina Carroll about her book titled The Politics of Imperial Memory in France, 1850 to 1900, published by Cornell University Press in 2022. The book is absolutely fascinating because it highlights the connections between domestic political struggles and overseas imperial structures in France. Sometimes those things can be talked about um, in their own way without thinking about how they interact and go together. Um, so I really appreciated the interweaving of all of these different, um, quite complex elements throughout the book that really helps explain and explore what empire actually meant during this period in France, um, not just for the sake of understanding that own that particular period, which is quite important historically, um, but also kind of what the implications are for that debate Um, later on. So this is a really, really interesting book. And Christina, I'm very excited to welcome you to the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Miranda. I'm very excited to be here to talk with you today about the book. Wonderful. Um, Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself and explaining why you decided to write this book?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Christina Carroll. I'm an assistant professor at Kalamazoo College, um, which is a small liberal arts college in Michigan. Um, And the book's framework intersects with two of my long-term interests. So I've always been interested in memory and in the way that popular narratives about the past shape events, uh, or sorry, shape the way that different people make sense of the present. Um, And I've also always had a long-standing interest in the question of how to define empire, which dates back to some of the arguments circulating in the early 2000s over whether the U.S. war in Iraq should be seen through an imperial framework. Um, But the book's origin emerged more specifically out of research that I was completing for my master's thesis, actually. So I was originally working on the memory of the Franco-Prussian War in France and Germany, and I noticed that a number of French Republican writers framed french defeat in the war as an effect of France's imperial system, which they described in both Napoleonic and colonial terms. So they argued basically that the second empire of Napoleon III had been a corrupting force that had cultivated decadence and effeminacy among the French people in order to draw attention away from the autocratic nature of the Bonapartist state. Um, so these descriptions invoked the specter of Montesquieu's oriental despotism to discredit Napoleon III Some writers even described Napoleon III as an Algerian Arab chief. That's a term you see kind of circulating in the propaganda at the time, implying basically that French colonial rule in Algeria had infiltrated metropolitan France through the person of the emperor himself. So I was struck by how these descriptions combined a critique of Bonapartist imperialism with racist tropes about North Africa to criticize empire, especially since I knew that a number of these Republican writers would go on to promote overseas imperialism. Expansion in North Africa and elsewhere as a solution to Republican France's political problems. Really, less than a decade later, Um, so I became interested in exploring how these writers moved from an apparent rejection of empire to the embrace of empire in the intervening years. That is a good puzzle, Um,
0: and one you illustrate very clearly in the book. Of like, I'm brought along on this journey. Like, okay, all right, I see what they're saying. I see how they're arguing this. Wait, wait, hang on, hang on, like they're now arguing something very different. And I'm looking back at the years again to make sure I've not missed a few decades. No, no, it really is actually a shorter time period as I thought. Huh. Okay. So I think the the puzzle that you're presenting um, comes through very clearly in the book. Uh, And it is something kind of, as soon as you notice it, you're like, huh, that interesting. Um, And so... You, there's clearly a ton that's happening here, right? It's this whole debate with a lot of different people involved. Um, and I imagine that one of the challenges in terms of writing this was kind of how to distill it down into something coherent, um, the way your your answer just obviously was. Um, I think there's probably a lot of work that went into that. And one of the things you talk about at the beginning of the book is kind of how you chose to structure it or sort of introduce us to these things or take us along the journey, um, which is through these sort of windows. How did you first kind of decide on windows as the way of making sense of this? And then I guess probably the harder task was which windows?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, So I chose the windows route, I think, partly, again, just as a way of making the material manageable on some level. Um, The book starts in the 1850s, and it goes through 1900, which there are certainly books that cover longer periods of time. But um, I'm looking at debates over empire in metropolitan France and the the colonies as well. So it's a wide geographic space in addition to being, um, you know, a, a, Chronological period where there's a lot of political change happening. So that's why I went with the Windows route. Um, And I specifically chose events or conflicts that focused attention on empire within the public sphere. So basically, events that led people um, to really focus in on empire as a political problem. So For that reason, the earliest chapters look primarily at Algeria because that colony commanded the most metropolitan attention during the Second Empire and the early Third Republic. Um, But then later on, um, the book also thinks about how war and political revolution in metropolitan France along with attempted colonial expansion in Mexico and West Africa and Indochina and Madagascar all intersect with these debates over the meaning of empire. So that's where you can see kind of um, how the book is bridging the metropolitan colonies to show that shifts in the conversation about empire in France are driven by developments in, in both of these different kinds of spaces. That makes a lot of
0: sense. Um and kind of helpfully, in some ways, the history helps here, right? There's, there's sort of one big debate at the beginning of the period, and then it branches out. But that allows that tracing of continuity um, in really interesting ways. But before we kind of get into some of the uh, depth of those debates, the content of those debates, could you maybe tell us a little bit about kind of who's participating in these conversations and debates and sort of how, practically, how are they all talking to each other?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my book focuses primarily on the question of how empire was defined in French political and intellectual circles. So in public discourse, basically, which means newspaper and journal articles, official political speeches, government correspondence, colonial administrative documents, theoretical treatises, academic histories, political propaganda, novels, Um Conversations about empire were unfolding in other kinds of spaces too, Um, but because I was particularly interested in the political implications of these arguments over empire, I focused my attention there. Um, And in terms of who was involved, I think something that's important to keep in mind is that while the public sphere that these debates over empire emerged in is definitely expanding in the late 19th century, it remains exclusive and contested and fractured by both geography and political orientation. Um, And geographic divides play a particularly large role outside of metropolitan France. So even in Algeria, which is just across the Mediterranean, many publications aren't Circulating directly between metropole and colony Um, and much of the correspondence from more distant colonies such as Indochina or Senegal um, is moving through the colonial administration and really only indirectly finds its way into public circulation. So what that means is that outside of large colonial scandals, which were extensively covered in the French press. Metropolitan journalists and writers sometimes struggled to gather really basic data um, about what was happening in the colonies, even well into the 1890s, thanks to the colonial ministry's efforts to control information. So there's a the kind of, you know, traditional Habermasian vision of the public sphere as this place where citizens come together as equals to rationally debate questions of general interest. But this model doesn't really ever reflect the reality of 19th century Europe. There's never one unified conversation about empire that's happening. Instead, you have multiple overlapping but somewhat disjointed ones, and different people are contributing to these different conversations in these different places in distinct ways. Um, that said, the question of whose ideas could enter into wide circulation was clearly intertwined with the social hierarchies that structured the 19th century French Empire. So, elites mostly dominated the debates that this book looks at. But even elite communities entered debates from different positions of power and influence. So, French politicians, intellectuals, journalists, novelists, colonial administrators, settler communities, colonial subjects, they all have different abilities to command audiences, and they also often disagreed with one another. Um, so, as the levels of influence of different groups shifted, the conversation about empire could shift too. Um, so, the transformations in the debates that occurred in the early Third Republic, for example, partly reflect the fact that settler communities in Algeria are all of a sudden able to command a larger audience in the metropole than they had been able to beneath the Second Empire because they have close ties with Republican politicians who are now in power. Um, And at the same time, indigenous Algerian elites are even more thoroughly excluded than they had been under the Second Empire. Um, That said, For most of the second half of the 19th century, the conversation about empire in France is mostly dominated by French voices. There are relatively few members of colonized communities able to participate in these arguments as direct interlocutors, thanks to colonial hierarchies, linguistic divisions, and ongoing censorship that specifically targets populations not uh, not populations publications not written in France uh, um, not written in French and by those without French citizenship which is something that Arthur osseroff's recent book electric news in colonial Algeria looks at specifically um, so this is all to say the question of who could participate in conversations about Empire is very deeply enmeshed in existing power structures um, that said I do think it's important to remember that the different groups of elites who are dominating these conversations are responding to a much wider array of groups, um, including working class communities in the metropole and colonized communities overseas whose actions and resistance influence and challenge the visions of empire and circulation. So the Macrani uprising in Algeria in 1871, for example, affects the way that French Republicans talk about French rule in Algeria and the territory's relationship to France really all through the 1870s um, And the Aid the King movement in Vietnam, on the other hand, um, frustrates the French military's ability to conquer Vietnam and contributes to the political crisis over Republican colonial expansion in the Chamber of Deputies in the 1880s. So the conversation is really designed to be an exclusionary one, um, but colonized communities do influence it indirectly. Wonderful. Thank you for um, explaining that both
0: to set up the foundation for the rest of the discussion. Um, and because it's just really interesting in itself and kind of in a lot of ways almost as a sort of microcosm of the wider book of, you know, discussions that are along the same sorts of threads, but actually have a whole bunch of other things going on that, you know, maybe if you just read like this one newspaper, you wouldn't see the whole picture, um, which is really quite interesting that you've managed to pull it all together Um, because I can't imagine I'm guessing that not only did they disagree with each other they also disagreed with each other in different papers and so (laughs) tracking all sorts of things down and piecing it
1: together was probably not straightforward yeah there's definitely a lot of moving pieces here
0: yes um so I'd love to kind of now that we have that foundation do a quick highlight tour as it were of some of the key um, aspects of the book in chronological order. Um, as an aside, I must admit I was kind of pleased when um, I got the book and saw it was 1850, 1900, like that kind of stuck in my head. I was like, oh, okay, that's like a nice, not that long a period. Like, we're not talking a thousand years here. Cool, we should be able to get our heads around this. And then I read it and I was like, oh, but a lot was happening. So I do have to warn listeners that we're definitely not going to be able to cover all the detail that's in the book, but hopefully we should be able to get at least a sense of kind of what was going on um, during this time. So I'd love to start us off by talking about Napoleon III um, and particularly kind of his legacy that he leaves or his uh, the contribution to these debates Um, around exactly what we talked about at the beginning this idea of like what counts as domestic what counts as overseas when we're talking about empire
1: yeah absolutely um so I'll take a minute to talk about how and why Napoleon III conflated domestic and overseas empire together and then I'll talk about the consequences of the way that he's thinking about empire for the people who follow him um So early in his reign, Napoleon III starts by defining the Second Empire mostly as a domestic political program. So that means that he mostly uses the term empire in opposition to terms like monarchy or republic, right? Um, Which means that the term the Second Empire refers to the government of the French nation, not to a grouping of multiple states or peoples. Napoleon III describes the Second Empire this way, partly because he's trying to reassure both his subjects and his neighbors that he's not planning to try to conquer most of Europe, like his uncle, right? Um, but at the same time, he's also clearly committed to restoring the myth of French imperial grandeur, which rested on Napoleon I's military legacy and on this more expansive imperial model, right, that imagines empire as a grouping of multiple states, not just as the government for the French nation. Um, so there are some real tensions there. Um, and Napoleon Third actually becomes more interested in cultivating Napoleon I's more expansive imperial legacy over time, because by the 1860s, he's facing new kinds of political dissent for a variety of reasons at home. Um, So at that moment in the 1860s, Napoleon III starts looking for ways to cast the influence of the Second Empire beyond the borders of the French nation and draw on the legacy of Napoleonic Continental Empire to underwrite kind of his own imperial prestige, even as he's still trying to distinguish between his empire's imperial expansion and Napoleon I's legacy of European war. Um, So my book focuses on how he does this in both Mexico and Algeria in the 1860s. 1860s. So, in Mexico, um, where Napoleon III tries to create what he called a Latin Empire that he says will serve as France's ally in the Americas, um, and he does this by overthrowing Mexico's existing republican government and establishing Archduke Ferdinand Maximilian as the Emperor of Mexico. There, he's imagining empire as both a national and a global project. So, he imagines empire as involving a set of domestic politics. Um, embraced both in France and in Mexico that could strengthen different branches of what he describes as one Latin race while informally uniting them together. Um, Algeria is a little bit different. Algeria was an existing French colony that Napoleon III, at about the same time as the Mexican expedition in the early 1860s, he tries to reconceptualize by arguing that Algeria is not a French colony at all, but a Royaume Arab or an Arab kingdom. So in Algeria, he's trying to reimagine the Second Empire as a multinational political formation that can incorporate different peoples. So there are some differences between the vision of empire that Napoleon embraces in Mexico and Algeria. But in both cases, he uses the term empire to refer to both a type of domestic politics and to different ways of projecting power overseas, which is different from the way that he was talking about empire in the 1850s. So these visions of empire in both Mexico and Algeria were contradictory in all kinds of ways. Um, They were also very controversial in Mexico, France, and Algeria. So the Republican government in Mexico, perhaps unsurprisingly, vehemently rejects Napoleon III's ideas about empire. Um, And in France too, Napoleon III's plan for an allied Latin empire in Mexico is greeted with a fair amount of skepticism. And that's even before Maximilian's government falls apart and Maximilian is executed by Republican Mexican troops. Um, In Algeria, on the other hand, most of the opposition comes from the European settler population. So many settlers argued that by categorizing Algeria as an Arab kingdom, Napoleon III was collapsing the differences between colonists and colonized and subsuming Europeans into the indigenous population. So, throughout the 1860s, you have settlers in Algeria arguing that Algeria is not an Arab kingdom, but a French colony, and they say that they alone can ensure the territory's economic and political success. Um, And actually, at least partly because of the strength of settler opposition, Napoleon III never succeeds in restructuring Algeria or in carrying out most of his proposed reforms. Um, So what that means um, is that both of Napoleon III's attempts to combine domestic and overseas empire together are very unsuccessful, at least as far as their policy effects go, right? Uh, uh, Maximilian's empire in Mexico collapses, the reforms don't get put in place in Algeria. But many of the critics of Napoleon III's imperial systems often unintentionally reinforce his attempts to collapse domestic and overseas empire together, but they just do so in a negative instead of in a positive way. So they say that Um, Napoleon III's domestic politics and overseas policies are intertwined, um, and that Napoleon III's misguided approach, as they say, towards Algeria and Mexico is a reflection of Bonapartism's flaws. Um, So what that means is that you see Republicans continuing to associate Napoleon III's vision of a Mediterranean empire in Algeria and his vision of a Latin empire in Mexico with his domestic imperial system well into the 1870s and the 1880s
0: which leads to some interesting interesting things um and uh before we even continue that was an incredibly masterful uh summation of a lot of complexity so thank you for um indulging me in asking for a summary um if i i, I must direct again le- readers uh, listeners to the book for the proper details um because there's some really interesting and like sometimes quite surprising quotes that you found and things. So um, I do want to make sure people know that those are there. Um, but I do want to kind of move to what is in some ways in the middle of your book, um, but is also kind of the starting point, right? When you, when you said at the beginning, kind of why you were initially interested in this um, and the Franco-Prussian war has a really big impact on these debates around empire uh, within France. And you argue that um the war itself kind of afterwards helped solidify a quote diametrical opposition between the concepts of empire and republic and there's already some sense of that in the answer you just gave right the conflation of kind of napoleon at home and napoleon abroad everything's imperial etc cetera, etc cetera. um but how does the franco-prussian war in particular kind of lead to these two things being seen as you know the black and white concepts
1: yeah absolutely um So as a number of scholars have shown, I think the Franco-Prussian War was a deeply traumatic event. Um, French troops were defeated pretty quickly over the course of, I mean, really less than six months. Um, The defeat leads to the loss of two French provinces, the outbreak of the Paris Commune, the emergence of a unified Germany on France's eastern border. The defeat also leads to the end of the Second Empire. Um, But I think what's key here is that the republic that replaces Napoleon III's government doesn't really emerge out of national consensus. Um, And the only real reason that the republic remains intact is because the country's main anti-Republican political groups can't cooperate with one another to agree on another kind of government to set up in the Republic's place. Um, But that means that Republican politicians feel very much like they're on the defensive in the wake of the war. In the first elections, um, after the war's conclusion, monarchist groups are elected um, as the majority. um, in, um, yeah, the first wave of elections. So they feel on the defensive. Um, and that's especially the case because these conservative groups are eager to blame them for the Paris Commune, especially. So in this moment of political transition, the meanings of both empire and republic were fluid and both potentially associated with defeat and civil war. So as a result, the republicans are really focused on trying to defend the new republic's legitimacy by defining it against the imperial government that preceded it. So they argue that the second empire is responsible for all of France's political misfortunes. They promise that the republic alone can redeem the country. Um, and they associate, as I think I said at the beginning, the word empire with effeminacy, decadence, and fraternal strife and defeat. Um, they argue that empire is an illegitimate form of political organization. They promise that any return toward imperialism will ruin France's uh, future. Um, and I think importantly, um, I would say this vision of empire appears not just in Republican political pub. Publications that have kind of limited audiences, but also in novels and short stories written about the Franco Prussian War by prominent writers with Republican sympathies like Emile Zola, Victor Hugo, Alphonse Daudet, um, which means that this understanding of this opposition between Republican empire is circulating more broadly in public discourse
0: fascinating um it, i think this is was a really key point uh to show the kind of expansiveness of it um, by bringing in those kind of other you know not just the political pamphlets essentially um it it is clear that it made such a massive impact um of course you're not the only uh, book to say that um there's plenty of really amazing scholarship um that you and that was another kind of helpful part as well not just to bring together all of the different primary source stuff but also to bring together the secondary things and sort of what you're adding and piecing in with um, kind of the rest of the current conversation. Um, And that kind of was a really, I'm really glad you had already pieced together all these things and clearly were very, uh, it was very clear reading it, how all those things went together, Uh, because then we get to the part that uh, on paper definitely sounds perhaps the most confusing, um, or maybe that's just me, which is how exactly did the Republicans then, try and justify, rationalize, oh yeah, no, we can have a colony in Algeria, yeah, you know, we can have that overseas empire, that bit's fine,
1: right <laughs> um, <laughs> and I mean, I think what's you know particularly marked about that is that it's definitely the case that in the first decade of the republic, um, uncertainties and tensions over defining empire really are particularly resonant in Algeria, um, which maybe isn't that surprising given how um, it's perceived importance to France, um, the fact that Napoleon III had used the territory to promote the idea of a French Mediterranean empire that would rest on Bonapartist political principles and bind multiple peoples together under one overarching imperial structure. Um, So what that meant was that on a discursive, if not really at all on a practical level, Napoleon III had transformed formed Algeria into kind of a a symbol of Bonapartist imperial strategy. So after the second empire's collapse, Republicans tried to restructure Algeria. Um, And they do that at least partially in the face of political pressure from the settler community there, which had opposed Napoleon III's attempts to define the territory as an Arab kingdom, as I think I mentioned a moment ago. Um, So instead, settlers had argued that Algeria should be assimilated into the French metropole, which meant that they as settlers wanted to have the same rights and institutions as their metropolitan counterparts, and they wanted indigenous Algerians who made up the vast majority of the population to be forced to assimilate into French culture without also having access to those same rights. So settlers support assimilation because it clearly offers them a hegemonic position within Algeria. But restructuring Algeria around the idea of assimilation also has conceptual benefits for Republicans in the metropole. Um, So 19th century French Republicans saw the model of assimilation as belonging to a longer Republican political tradition. Um, And by accepting settlers' contention that they were, as European settlers, um, the primary population in Algeria, by granting those settlers additional political rights and embracing the language of assimilation to describe Republican France's new relationship with the territory, Republicans could claim that they had transformed Algeria, much as they also sought to transform metropolitan France. So they argue essentially that Bonapartist empire in Algeria had been problematic for the same reasons that it was problematic in France. It had been autocratic, it depended on military rule, And it rested too much on the authority of local elites. And hence, they could also argue that by creating representative institutions for settlers, establishing a civil regime and limiting the authority of the military and of indigenous elites, that they had eliminated empire in Algeria. They'd gotten rid of it. Um, Yeah. so this argument, I should say, doesn't actually undo Napoleon III's conflation of domestic and overseas empire. It actually builds on it, right? So Republicans are arguing that French rule in Algeria is legitimate because they've replaced empire at home and overseas with a new Republican regime. Now, this claim rests on the discursive erasure of indigenous communities, right, who, as I said, make up the vast majority of the population don't have citizenship rights, right? They continue to be ruled in extremely autocratic ways. Um, So Republicans attempt to restructure Algeria around the model of assimilation it doesn't actually resolve their conflicted relationship with the idea of empire. It just kind of papers over it essentially. Um, And the model of assimilation also doesn't really give Republicans a language to defend future colonial expansion or colonial conquest since it's built around the European settler community, right? Almost entirely. Um, So. That's I think a really key um, sort of thing that
0: they maybe overlooked is, okay, this works. Only in exactly these kinds of circumstances,
1: and only if you don't poke too hard. Right. Right. Yeah. No. Only if you don't. Only. if you don't start thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for explaining that
0: because um, it it is quite interesting how, in some ways, it it's, it seems very convoluted. It's like, wow, why are you going into so much effort? Um, but as you mentioned already, right, the settler population has these links, has kind of a way to get their voice in.
1: Yeah, no, there's this kind of longer history of ties between um, settlers in Algeria and metropolitan Republicans in France that actually dates back to the Second Empire, um, because for a variety of reasons, um, Republicans had um, found settler complaints about the Second Empire, Useful um, in their, you know, attempts to criticize Napoleon III's regime, so they had sometimes kind of served as a platform for those complaints. Um, So there is this actually longstanding relationship that predates um, the Third Republic. There
0: makes sense. I'd love then to take the beautiful um, segue that you already gave me. Um, which is about kind of, well, hang on a second, what happens when the empire, when they try to expand the empire beyond places that have settler populations? Um, And in fact, that is a thing that is then attempted. Um, So what similarities and differences can we see first between the public debates we've already been talking about around empire um, and what the French were doing then in Vietnam?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the... So what I would say is that one of the kind of major differences between the arguments around Algeria and the arguments around Vietnam, and then also later Madagascar, too, um, is that in Algeria, Republicans are essentially, they're trying to restructure the territory, um, but they're reimagining France's relationship um, with an existing colony. Um, Whereas in Vietnam, and then later Madagascar, they're trying to defend colonial conquest, right? Um, And I think especially because one of the main critiques of Napoleonic empire that really kind of goes all the way back to the first empire and that Republicans built on through the second empire and especially in the Mexican expedition is this sense that empire means war, right? Um, And that the reason that... Um, One of the reasons that they thought that Napoleonic empire was problematic um, was because it led France on these kind of warmongering adventures. That's the term that's always used um, that in the long run um, create problems at home. Right. Um, So for a variety of reasons, um, it's somewhat more difficult conceptually for Republicans to distinguish between colonial conquest that they're doing um, and other kinds of imperial military conquests. Um, But there's actually, so there are some, you know, tensions between um, or some differences between the arguments um, that ensue for those reasons. Um, There are also differences between the debates um, surrounding uh, colonial conquest in Vietnam and then later Madagascar. Um, So the arguments over Vietnam happened in the mid-1880s, sorry, and then the arguments over Madagascar happened in the mid-1890s. Um, And both of these sets of debates emerge in response to French military debacles. So in Vietnam, the debates are a reaction to a Chinese army's defeat of French troops at Lang San. Um, In Madagascar, the debates are a reaction to the army's extremely high mortality rate. Um, Both public debates are also driven by concerns around how expensive both of the expeditions are. There are some similarities in the nature of the arguments advanced, as well. So in both cases, what you see are journalists from leftist and rightist and popular presses coming together to attack the centrist Republican government's policies and practices. Um, So journalists in both cases claim that key government ministers are deeply incompetent and potentially criminal. There are calls in both cases for formal inquiries into government behavior. But on the whole, the press coverage of the invasion of Madagascar in the 1890s is much less common like it's much less critical um, than the press coverage of the invasion of Vietnam, and the nature of the criticisms varies too. So. In the arguments over Vietnam in the 1880s, you have this wide coalition of journalists and politicians on the left and the right, essentially arguing that the problems with the expedition to Vietnam extended beyond the decisions made by individual ministers and instead were evidence of the problems with colonial expansion itself, right? So colonial expansion, not just whatever has been done in Vietnam, is the problem. Um, And a number also directly associated colonial expansion with the Second Empire and argued, essentially, that Napoleon III's embrace of colonial conquest in Mexico, in particular, had been responsible for leading France to defeat in the Franco Prussian War in the first place, and that centrist Republicans were now taking France down the same path once again in Vietnam. So they draw direct connections between um, these events. Um, the Republican left, in particular, argues that the campaign itself is also a violation of Republican principles that threatens the legitimacy of the Republic itself. Um, And I think you can see there how the perceived connection between imperial rule abroad and despotism at home hasn't gone away in the 1880s. Um, And this coalition of critics succeeds in bringing down the centrist Republican government of Jules Ferry. Um, So it's much more if we're thinking back to what's happening in Algeria in a lot of ways. Right. It's um, more controversial um, in the metropolitan government itself. Although tellingly, I would say um, the critics of Ferry's policies don't actually withdraw from Vietnam or give up the new colonial conquest there, which indicates, I think, that there are real limits to their concerns. Um, But by the 1890s, there isn't the same kind of debate over the merits of colonial conquest. Instead, the opposition is basically just using the government's botched efforts to criticize the political Um, coalition in charge. So there's this big kind of transformation that happens between the 1870s at this moment when Republican politicians are trying to argue, what we're doing isn't imperial at all. Um, The 1880s, where they're defending conquest, right? And that creates kind of political conflicts. And then the 1890s, um, where it seems like colonial conquest isn't seen as a problem in the same kind of way. It might've been in the 1870s or the 1880s.
0: And this is why I said um, earlier in the interview that yes, it's only 50 years, but a whole lot's happening. Um, so thank you for kind of taking us through that those those steps um, in the change. and. I sort of want to continue that because in the 1890s, it's not just um, sort of debates about kind of the particular intervention or the particular uh, military invasion that's kind of changing at that point. Um, but also you point to a lot of changes in terminology around the debate anyway, like suddenly just the literal terms of the debate are also changing. Um why were they changing kind of at this point in the 1890s? And what can we understand from, for example, the term that at least to me kind of stuck out as one of the most important, um, empire colonial?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think the significance of the embrace of the term empire colonial or colonial empire by republican intellectuals and politicians in the 1890s is easier to see if you consider that republican politicians and intellectuals almost entirely stopped using the word empire to refer to france's overseas territories in the wake of the franco-prussian war for nearly 20 years Instead, they use a series of different words, colonie, département, um, when referring um, to overseas territories. And that's true even when they're defending colonial conquest in the 1880s. They don't use the term empire. Um, And that does mark a real shift from Second Empire usages. So um, the imperial government of Napoleon III had used the term empire, overseas empire, Mediterranean empire, and colonial empire to refer to overseas territories. So I think partly because colonial advocates were so focused throughout the 1870s and 1880s on detaching colonial expansion from Bonapartist empire, they avoided using anything that might sound like Bonapartist vocabulary to describe their colonial projects. Um, So that is all to say, the turn to the term colonial empire or overseas empire really does mark yet another shift. and to some extent, I would argue the embrace of colonial empire as a term in the 1890s reflects the degree to which the memory of Bonapartism had faded by the end of the 19th century, right? Um, so Bonapartism, for a variety of reasons, just isn't seen as a political threat in the same way at that point as it was, especially in the 1870s, when people, when the Republicans are actually worried about a Bonapartist restoration, Um But at the same time, I think one of the things that's interesting um, is that most colonial advocates who use the term still tried to control its political implications by either claiming that colonial empire aligned with Republican ideas or by arguing that it transcended domestic politics. So it was apolitical. Um, And those are the two strategies that Republican advocates of colonial expansion had started using in the 1870s to distance themselves from Bonapartism. Um, I would even go so far as to say that the visions of colonial empire that these intellectuals and politicians were propounding in the 1890s have their roots in early Third Republic ideas about colonialism, which are themselves constructed in opposition to Republicans' beliefs about what Bonapartism represented. So the embrace of colonial empire as a term reflects the forgetting of Bonapartism, but oddly, I think also demonstrates how Bonapartism and reactions against it continued to shape the way that Republicans talked about empire even in the 1890s. Um, That said, the embrace of colonial empire in the 1890s isn't just about Bonapartism. Um, I think it also reflects a growing consensus that empire inside of Europe was materially different from empire outside of Europe. And that consensus was built on the growing power and solidification of racist thinking during the 1880s and 1890s. Um, So scientific racism becomes increasingly institutionalized in France over that period. um, And Republicans use it to distinguish between empire in Europe, which they say is illegitimate, and empire in other parts of the world, which they argue is fine, um, as long as the people it's directed at aren't white. So racism absolutely kind of underwrites the consensus around the term that emerges in the 1890s. Um, I do think it's worth remembering, though, as Emmanuel Sada in particular has pointed out, that the government of the Third Republic never formally adopts the term empire to describe France's colonies. Um, It's only formally adopted under the fascist Vichy regime. Um, which I do think indicates that for all that you have different people using it starting in the 1890s, Republican ambivalence about it never totally disappears. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really key point um, to
0: understand as well, kind of the difference sometimes just in the words between official policy and kind of what's being talked about, um, but how what's being talked about, even if it's not official policy, can still both tell us a lot as historians, but also have an impact um so the book does technically say in the title no less um, that it ends in 1900 however um i wonder if you could maybe tell us a little bit about um what the consequences of these debates around empire are going beyond 1900 kind of how does this continue um obviously i'm not going to ask you to like you know add multiple new chapters to your book but in like broad strokes
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So there is, right, at least something of a new political consensus around the term colonial empire in the 1890s. Um, But I will say that consensus leaves a lot of things unsettled. Um, so politicians, writers, and intellectuals keep disagreeing around, uh, sorry, really over um, the term's meaning, its consequences for France. They argue about whether colonial empire should be seen as something that will be permanently annexed to France, whether it will eventually fold into the French nation or break apart into new independent nations. Um, they argue about whether the empire is in line with Republican ideas or whether Republican ideals are relevant to colonial politics. They disagree about how the empire should be administered and about the rights that colonized subjects and settler communities should be able to exercise within it. Um, And those disagreements continue into the 20th century, Um, especially because at that point, you begin to see colonized communities like the young Algerians in Algeria, for example, able to command an audience in France for their their ideas. Um, So the young Algerians were a group of French educated Algerian Muslims who were deeply influenced by the young Turk revolution of 1908, which at least initially had tried to create a liberal constitutional government that they imagined would revitalize the Ottoman Empire in the face of encroaching European imperial power. The young Algerians are even more directly inspired by the young Tunisians movement. The group's a little bit hard to generalize about because members of the group took a really wide range of positions on Algeria's future and its relationship to France, Um, but most condemned the exploitative, authoritarian, and exclusionary political structures under which Algerians lived, and they proposed a variety of reforms that they suggested that the Republic should follow if it actually wanted to assimilate Algeria and transform it into an extension of France overseas. And they tried to build alliances across the Mediterranean with politicians and intellectuals who were critical of colonist hegemony in Algeria. So they published in French metropolitan journals. They wrote petitions to the metropolitan government. They even sent delegations to France to explain their ideas. Um, There's a group in 1912 who's even able to meet with the French prime minister. Um, I do think um, that it's telling that while they seem to have been warmly received by a variety of government officials, those officials did not follow through on any of their proposed reforms, at least before the First World War. Um, but as we know, in the years after World War One, a new wave of criticism, originating especially from other groups in the colonies, the Communist Party as well, um, would again highlight the contradictions between Republican promises and imperial practices. Those voices still remain somewhat marginalized in the interwar years, but they become stronger still after 1945, as people in France's colonies increasingly demand access to full citizenship rights and attack the premise of empire itself. And in response to that criticism, Republicans again try to redefine empire and re-articulate its relationship to the French nation, partly by turning away once again from the term empire and toward alternative constructions of France overseas or the French Union, the French community. Um, And in doing so, Republicans again would try unsuccessfully to renegotiate the complicated relationship between the Republic and the nation and overseas territory. Fascinating. Um obviously, that could be multiple additional books, um,
0: (laughs) which seems mildly unfair. Um, But I I think that's just such a really helpful kind of understanding um, of the impact of the five decades that you focus primarily on, um, that they're not just important for understanding those particular five decades, but really have um, a legacy far beyond that. Um, So we've Obviously, the fact that I've asked you a question about after 1900 implies pretty heavily that we have completed our chronological highlights tour of the book. Um, but I'd love to ask you a little bit more um, about kind of the behind the scenes, the backstory or the background bit of the book, um, because we have been sort of hinting at the idea of lots of sources going on, lots of complexity to explain. Um, and you've been working on this for obviously quite a long time. Um so I'm wondering if there's one or two things um, from the research process uh, that kind of jump out at you as being,
1: when you came across them, something, something that surprised you. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think in some ways, the story that surprised me the most while working on this book Um, was the story of the underqualified explorer, Paul Soleil and the Republican government's attempt to build a railroad across the Saharan desert in the 1870s. So I hadn't encountered material about either Soleil or the Trans-Saharan Railroad before I started this project, even though there are other scholars who've worked on both. Um, So there are lots of things about Paul Soleil that himself are kind of surprising. So he managed to convince a number of French Chambers of Commerce and government officials to give him money in the 1870s to undertake um, an exped- or multiple expeditions, um, none of which work between Algeria and Senegal. And that's true, even though it's very clear to everyone that he doesn't have any geographical training. (laughs) He knows almost nothing about North or West Africa. Um, He doesn't speak any Arabic or any other languages. Um, And I found all of that pretty remarkable. And then the fact that his explorations kept on going astray and he's continually able to get more people to give him money, um, Also, um, kind of I found pretty striking. Um, And then I think the other and this is tied to Soleil because he gets kind of looped into this plan. um, But I was surprised by the government plan to build a railroad in between Senegal and Algeria across the Saharan desert, which is tied to these visions of transforming the Sahara into farmland. So I was very much aware that there are lots of kind of groups and individuals floating around in the 19th century with these kind of ambitious, I don't know if the right word is utopian, but these like transformative visions, right? Um, But I was surprised that the centrist Republican government was funding this project. Um, So... Both of these incidents in the end really highlighted to me how committed these different groups and government officials were to colonial expansion in the 1870s, but also at the same time how determined these individuals and institutions were to distance Republican colonial expansion from what they imagined as the problems with Bonapartism, Bonapartist imperialism. So people like Soleil were super useful, even though he you know, wasn't very good at what he said he was going to do um, because he allowed Republican politicians to argue that he, they were pursuing a peaceful kind of colonial expansion through exploration that would have commercial, scientific and humanitarian benefits while avoiding the military conflict and despotism that Republicans said had characterized Napoleonic imperial projects. So that portrayal of exploration had almost no resemblance to the actual practice of exploration or colonial expansion, even in the 1870s. But it really does become a central way that Republicans spoke about it at that moment, before they decide they can defend colonial conquest in Vietnam in the 1880s. Okay, that that's a pretty good surprise. Uh, I can imagine
0: uh, being pretty perplexed coming across that and going, Okay. Okay. So he gets money the first time. All right. Let's see what he does with that. Oh, it really fails. Okay. Well, I guess that's the last we've heard of him. Oh, oh no, wait, no. Now he's back. How?
1: Yep. Yeah. That's a good surprise. Yeah. No, especially since, you know, there's, there's public, like there's newspaper articles where the first expedition, he is supposed to be collaborating with someone else. And then that person drops out of the expedition and then gives this really you know not very flattering interview where he's like he has no skills or ability to do this like yeah yeah. it wasn't secret that these were failures (laughs) right right no it was not all right then all right then
0: well that's a very um interesting entertaining and intriguing note to end the discussion on the book about um which leaves only my last question um which is You've worked on this for ages, you've put a lot of effort into it, there's massive amounts of detail and complexity that somehow in the book is like clear and understandable and makes a lot of sense, as you've um, shown through this interview as well, but the book is out.
1: So what are you working on now or next? So I'm currently at the very beginnings of a new project that focuses on I'm looking at people who were transported from one colony to another or from the French metropole to a colony for political crimes during the Second Empire. So same kind of historical period, but a shift in focus. Um, so I'm looking at practices of transportation and carceral institutions, and I'm interested in looking at how they intersect with imperial structures and imperial ideologies. So I'm actually in Paris right now doing some early research on these questions. So I'll have more answers as I move forward with it. But that's where that's where I am at the moment. Well, hopefully those
0: answers will be presented in book form, and then you can come back and tell us about
1: it. That would be delightful. I would love to have another conversation with you about a different book in the future wonderful well i will hold out hope for that
0: um but in the meantime while you are diving into the parisian archives um listeners can read the book that we've been talking about which again is titled the politics of imperial memory in france 1850-1900 to 1900, published by cornell university press in 2022 dr christina carroll thank you so much for being on the podcast thank you so much for having me